You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, Pikane, and Ghanai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakota, including the Chiniki, Bearsport, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here in the Department of Political Science. Just a caution before we get started, this podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm your host for today, Gavin Cameron. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Maureen Hebert. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Gavin. And Josh Goldstein. Hi, Josh. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Maureen. In this episode, we're probing the margins of terrorism. We'll be having a conversation about Jewish terrorism against the Nazis in pre-Second World War Europe. Joining us today is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, Dr. Orr Honig. We're talking to him an ocean away as he's in Tel Aviv, Israel. Hi, Orr. Hi, it's a pleasure, Gibbon. And hi, hi Maureen, and hi, Josh. Hi, hi Orr. Orr. Orr is currently an Associate Professor of International Relations at Tokyo International University. Prior to that, he held positions at Duke University and at Tel Aviv University, in both cases in the political science departments. His research has dealt with a variety of issues related to terrorism and counterterrorism, such as terrorist propaganda and evidence fabrication, terrorists' rationality, lynching attacks, strategic assassinations, deterrence against terrorism, and coercion designed to stop terrorism. He has also written on Israeli and American security policies, especially in the Middle East context. As part of his research on the Middle East, he investigated issues such as regime survival after crushing military defeats and subversion tactics to take over other states without using military means. He finished his PhD in political science at UCLA and later did his postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Military and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. Before we dive into the nitty-gritty of your argument, I'd like to take a step back and get a sense of your academic origin story. How did you become interested in your broader research focus in terrorism and, more specifically, the theme for today? Okay, so there are two questions here, right? Um, so with regards to terrorism in general, um, I remember the days of the Al-Aqsa Intifada. There were suicide attacks in Jerusalem. And I was taking buses. I was taking, I was serving in the army, but I was in the headquarters in Tel Aviv. I was taking buses all the way to the Hebrew University. And I experienced fear and saw fear in people's eyes. Uh, it's something you it cannot escape you, the fear in people's eyes. Um, and uh, uh, I had my small pistol in case the terrorist comes along. Um, but the point is that once I reached the halls of academia, I entered the Hebrew University, they were talking about peace studies and conflict resolution and diplomacy. And I said, you're so disconnected from what's going on right now here. And it felt frustrating. It, it really felt frustrating. And I wanted to better understand terrorism. 
um, it affected our lives really to a great extent. Um, so that's with regards to terrorism in general. Now, the, the, what's going on here in this case is that there's something counterintuitive about terrorism and genocide. If you can use terrorism to prevent genocide, shouldn't you use it? Genocide is the most horrible thing that can happen in terms of human rights. We all believe we all have a liberal agenda and believe in limiting the suffering of people or the number of people being killed. Well, I know it's utilitarian philosophy rather than liberal philosophy, but shouldn't we support terrorism to prevent genocide if it does prevent genocide? Um, and, and that's one thing that really appealed to me because it's counterintuitive. And the other one is that we have here two individuals, actually three because the Ukrainian case is less well known, but it's actually a mini genocide. Um, 150,000 to 200,000 people um, die there. And again, um, you have acts of terrorism that are related to the prevention of genocide. It, it, it just made me more morally confused about right versus wrong. So I like that topic. I, I like to be confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's fortunate that you went into academia then. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you very nicely sort of brought up some of the some of the issues at play within the case study that you're going to present at the workshop. And as you've suggested, you're basically arguing about whether terrorism is an inherently illegitimate tactic and also right. about the strategic choices associated with particular forms of violence. So why, why one might commit a particular type of violence. Um, before we get going, however, on sort of those, those wider implications, can you just give us a very quick overview of the two, three cases that you've already alluded to? Just give us a, a, a quick taster of what, sure. we're, what we're talking about. Thanks, Kevin. Um... So we're talking about free cases, and I deliberately chose free. Look, we have only before the establishment of Israel, and if we ignore Zionist terrorism in Palestine for a moment or related to Israel, we have only five cases, only five cases of Jewish assassinations or attempted assassinations, Jews using violence. Now, of course, you might say the whole Jewish history is full of atrocities. Why are they not revenging? Why are they not using violence? Um, and, I, I, and I will answer that in, in a moment. Um, but so the Freeman cases that are related, that their goal was to prevent future violence, not just to revenge acts of violence, are first of all, the two against the Nazis. One is David Frankfurter, a Croatian, a Croatian Jew who lived in uh, Switzerland and who killed the head of the Nazi party in Switzerland um, thus helping eventually that Switzerland would not fall into the hands of the Nazis uh, via means of subversion the way that Austria did, right? So he saved 20,000, helped save 20,000 Jews who lived in Switzerland. Good for him. Um, and the second case, uh, that was in 1936, just before the Olympics that Hitler hosted, um, and so there was no retaliation. The second case is... Um, is very well known. It's Herschel Greenspan, um, a 70-year-old uh, Jewish, no longer a student, a Jew is, who's living in, in Paris without any permits and who kills uh, the third secretary, um, Ernst von Raff, 
in in uh, in the German embassy in in Paris, and that triggered, of course, Kristallnacht, uh, the night of the broken glasses, which was a turning point in German policy towards the Jews. Um, and these are the two main cases. The third case I thought belongs to to this category because here we have a case of a Jew both avenging a genocide as well as thinking forwards. And that's um, Shalom, Shulem Schwarzbard, um, a Jew from Ukraine, who was 40-something year old, a watchmaker living in Paris. And one day he hears that the leader of independent Ukraine called Simon Petliura, it has arrived in living in, in Paris. So he takes a gun and simply goes and shoots him in the street. Um, and it's a fascinating case, not well known, because before the Holocaust, Simon Petliura was the closest thing to a Hitler. Um, the Ukrainian genocide, as I mentioned before, uh, led to the death of around 50 to 200,000 Jews. Um, as part of the Russian Civil War. Do you want some historical background on that? It's very interesting. So uh, essentially, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, just some, some very quick background would be great. Right. So, okay, so this is what's going on. The Russian Empire was very big, and it encompassed areas of Ukraine and, and Poland as well. As soon as it collapses, we have a struggle between the white army, which is monarchist and want to reestablish the czar and so on, versus the Bolsheviks. Um, the Bolsheviks, uh, uh, now, in addition, they lose in Russia, the white army. But the, the, as soon as uh, uh, the Bolsheviks take over Russia, Trotsky and Lenin say, we need to take over Ukraine and Poland so we can export communism into uh, Central Europe and Western Europe, of course. And they try to do that. And and we have the Polish, the very famous Polish-Russian uh, uh, war between Joseph Pidluski as, against, um, against Trotsky and Lenin. But the truth is that he had a Ukrainian um, partner, and that was uh, Simon Petliura. Okay, now how is that related to the Jews at all? Um, some background, most Jews always when they use violence, they join existing undergrounds, exist, they don't self-identify as Jews. So of course, there were many Jews inside the Bolshevik movement. But the Ukrainian Jews were not Bolshevik. They just sided with whoever used least violence. And that happened to be the Bolsheviks, because A, they're very international, they're, they're less racist. I would even say communists are not racist. Uh, they're multi-ethnic, they believe, look at class struggle and so on. Um, uh, whereas Petliura and Ukrainian nationalism at that time believed in pure Ukraine, right? Without Poles, Jews, and so on. But also the Jews sided with the Bolsheviks. And so the, the volunteer army, that was the army of the Ukrainians, started killing Jews um, as part of the attempt to kill anyone who's identified as Bolshevik, right? Uh, so it's in the context of a civil war, the Jews have no choice. The Jews come to to uh, to uh, Petliura and say to him, please stop. Please tell your army to stop killing us. And he says, I will not let you come between the army, uh, the volunteer army, and me. Okay, He's basically unwilling to do anything. He's unwilling to stop pogroms at one. In one city, he's even seeing a pogrom and does nothing. 
is, is maybe a weak leader, maybe um, anti-Semite leader. I'm not going into his motives, but essentially he did not stop the genocide taking place um, under his watch with his army. Um, he let it happen. Um, but it's part of the Bolshevik versus nationalist forces, right? Um, I, I hope it's clear. Hmm. Uh, if not, I can explain again. Nope. No, I think that was pretty clear. All. Thank you. Um, if we can turn now to the sort of wider implications of these three cases. Um, when we talk about terrorism, a lot of the standard accounts do assume that terrorism as a tactic is inherently illegitimate. And one of the reasons that it made that the standard literature makes that argument is that it's indiscriminate. And we can absolutely take take issue with whether that's actually true, because there's all sorts of planning and tactical choices that are going to change whether something is truly um, uh, random or indiscriminate. But what you're talking about here is a series of assassinations. So that's even more specific. So how would the standard account of terrorism that you're looking to challenge here, how would the standard account of terrorism um, delegitimize assassinations of individuals? And why do you think it should that account shouldn't apply in in this case? Is it is it a, a greater good argument that you're making? And you, you alluded to that already earlier in our talk. So I want to give an example. Uh, maybe I'll repeat some of the things I said. Yes, please. Liberals believe in a, in a world governed by rules. They want to transition to a world governed by rules. Um, they they condemn violence, which is not for self defense. Um, and even though some people should pay a price and be punished for their misdeeds, they believe that should be found out in a court of law. Uh, and the procedures of justice must be kept. So there is a procedural aspect to liberalism as well, um, to criminal law. Um, notion of why terrorism is bad. Terrorism is, is bad because the person perpetrating terrorism doesn't know that the person that he's going to kill is really guilty or not. He's working based on hearsay. He doesn't know what that person is really on the scene. He's acting based on the perception that he has of that person, not on facts. Hmm. Um, unlike a government. So that's why terrorism is considered always bad. Um, I have a problem with that notion, because if we wait to the legal system to work, history would go in the wrong direction. Um, we all know that law scholars are great, but they don't deal with the real world sometimes. Um, and in order to change history in the right directions, sometimes you need to take law into your own hands. This is so completely anti-liberal, right? Um, you need to take law into your own hands if you want to change history in the right direction. Even for the liberal cause of saving lives. And that's why I see a contradiction. That's why I see liberalism not confronting the problem of the forces of history. That's where terrorists get it right and liberals get it wrong. Those who delegitimize terrorism get it wrong for that reason in particular. Um, does that make sense? Do you want me to explain no, or give an no, example? Or... No, I, 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 I understand. 
Um, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with you all, but uh, <laughs> but that's that's not necessary. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, you, you've basically made an argument for terrorism as a form of necessity. You've basically made a sort of again a greater good or a necessity argument here. Um, and you've basically right. articulated it as a form of necessary extrajudicial killing. Um, but there are lots of forms of violence that one might look at that are not assassinations, that are not this form of violence that you've, you've identified here. And when we look at the terrorism literature, um, strategic choice and sort of tactical choice is an important part of that literature. And the literature has spent a long time debating the balance between rational calculation, and some of what you're talking about is a, a calculation about where the greater good lies. So calculations between rational, rational and greater good, and a range of other factors, perhaps organizational requirements, logistical imperatives. How does your case here, or cases, help us to understand the factors that lead to terrorism in specific cases? Okay, so I'm saying, in the cases that I saw, people are saying, this must stop. People are dying. Um, uh, regimes are, taking, are, are too violent. We must do something to stop this. And we can we can do something to stop it. So it's a very empowering uh, experience to read their his the history of these cases, because I believe that these cases overall did more good than bad. Um, in the anti-Nazi cases, the, both Herschel Greenspan and uh, um, and David Frankfurter saw Jews being killed, persecuted, and they said enough is enough. We have to let the world know what is going on. We have to um, stop the source of violence um, and the source of genocide, which is coming towards us. And uh, that's why we have to use terrorism. So unlike terrorism, which is, I would say, trying to be used for a vision, right? Let's say, you know, let's say I have a vision to impose Sharia law in a continent of Europe. Let's say I have uh, a vision to do ethnic cleansing, uh, uh, in Bosnia. Let's say I have a vision to um, coerce the other side to make concessions in a dispute or conflict. Unlike that kind of terrorism, this kind of terrorism is born out of keen awareness of humanitarianism, right? It's humanitarian terrorism. Oh my God, I, I, this is a terrible term. But it's humanitarian because its goal is really to save lives. Um, the people who observed genocides are saying enough is enough or at least saw what is leading to a genocide enough is enough we must put a stop to this we must trigger some processes that will put a stop to this kind of um ethnic cleansing or genocide and and that's why that makes me see terrorism in new light in a completely new light sure and and i mean that and that makes sense and i don't think that actually is a particularly um odd characterization of terrorists self-understanding of what they're doing i mean um bruce hoffman for example has argued that terrorists see themselves as intrinsically altruists um 
and obviously you right. can you can take issue with whether that is objectively true but it might be subjectively true mm -hmm. um but but i mean i i don't think that that's a sort of um sort of completely outside the bounds of of fairly mainstream arguments within terrorism studies um i wonder if you can perhaps talk and you you have talked a little bit already about um the, the sort of wider demonstration effect the deterrence as you talked to of it uh about these these acts so we have the the sort of zionist groups in palestine uh a little later than the three cases that you're you're describing but we also have um the revenge attacks by nakam and um various other uh groups in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, so sort of 1945, 1946. To what extent were the cases that you're describing uh, influential in these slightly later sets of violence? Did, did they set an example? Did they inspire? They, they did not inspire yet. They did inspire later on in Israel. So those three cases are actually commemorated in Israel. Very much so. Mm. And I was actually surprised to the extent to which they're, you know, Sholem Schwarzbart is called the Avenger. And there are streets in Israel called the Nokem, the Avenger. And everyone knows this is about Sholem Schwarzbart. And there are streets after David Frankfurter. And there are streets, obviously, about Herschel Greenspan. And yet there are no streets about the Bielski brothers. Mm. There are no streets named after partisans who engage in self-defense. Why? Because Zionism is about Jews taking, finally taking weapons and, and, and acting like a nation. In that sense, and, and also avenging. And in that sense, because these were the heroes of Zionism, we can definitely see um, the state of Israel or Mossad using violence um, as part of this tradition whereby um, Jewish blood is not going to be cheap, right? And those who killed should pay the price. So, for instance, when Mossad is killing the Nazi uh, criminal, uh, Nazi uh, genocideur Herbert Zuckers in Uruguay, they're doing it as part of that tradition of Shalom Schwarzbard or others. We have to take, uh, sometimes we have to use violence and not just bring Eichmann to trial, but actually to kill people. Why? Even though Tsukurs was not a threat, obviously. He was old, he was a Nazi, he was living in Latin America, he was not a threat. But this is about revenge. Jews returning to history, namely becoming Zionist, is about revenge. And the state of Israel commemorates these free people precisely because they took action. Precisely because they said one day, I care about my people, therefore I must act. Now, forgive me for being biblical for a second. Moses does that. Moses look at, the, at uh, his people being um, enslaved and uh, treated harshly, and he does the wonderful thing of killing those, the slave driver. Um, uh, he does it out of empathy, right? That's why he's the hero of the Jewish people. He has empathy. And so he's a good terrorist. He's a good terrorist who feels empathy. But he doesn't even seek glory. He buries the body, which is only empathy. 
which is why all, you know, Moses is considered such a hero. Um, now, so, so, uh, but I think that this, this, M Moses always troubled me as a figure. I don't want to go there. But I think that, that these three people were celebrated or commemorated in Israel because the notion of taking, taking action when you see um, someone wanting to kill you is logical. It's, it's, um, it was an antidote to the Jewish reaction for generations, whereby you lower your head, you let the atrocity take place, and you wait for better times, for a better czar or a better ruler, or for Cromwell to come along in England. You know, um, that's kind of the, the Jewish tradition, and so it's an antidote, right? Um, so in that sense, it influenced Zionists, but it did not influence the specific revenge taking place after the Second World War. That specific revenge um, did not need these cases. Uh, the, 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 there was a, an imperative to revenge. People felt a need to revenge. Um, and, and by the way, we know of the, the cases where the Jewish Brigade did that with a lot of... Uh, uh, um, uh, with the British turning a blind eye. In the Soviet Union, it was even more um, uh, um, direct. The Soviets actually told the Jewish person, here, you see this house? This is where the, a Nazi lives. Go take this weapon. I'm giving you a weapon. Please go and kill him. So the Soviet Union believed in revenge much more than the British. The British just turned a blind eye, or the Americans sometimes gave intelligence to the Jewish brigade to kill, them, to kill a Nazi. But, but it's much more elaborate in the Soviet Union, this kind of um, natural justice, right? Without any court, uh, without any uh, judicial procedure. I hope I answered that question. Yes, no, that, that, was, um, that was great all, thank they you. They did not inspire. Okay, thank you. Um, and I think at this point, I will turn the questions over to uh, Maureen to per perhaps ask some questions about some of the specific historical specifics and their implications. Absolutely. So this has been a, you know, a really interesting discussion. And what I think is so interesting about your approach is that you're taking the two forms of violence in this project and putting them together. So, right. So it's the terrorism and the genocide piece. Um, you make an interesting observation in your claim that the three cases that you're looking at, or at least the, the two Nazi ones, are in part about genocide prevention, right? That you've, you've said that they kind of see this onslaught against the Jewish people in Europe coming down the road. And this is a kind of interesting way of thinking about genocide prevention, because usually, or at least now, since the creation of the UN Genocide Convention in 1948, we think that genocide, that genocide prevention is something that only states do. So this is a kind of interesting way of thinking about it. But but I do want to challenge you just a little bit, or maybe you can comment, maybe challenge is too harsh a way of putting it, just the, the kind of timeline of things. So we know in Holocaust and genocide studies, which is my area of expertise, uh, from very extensive archival research done since the opening of the Soviet archives in the early 1990s, that the Nazi regime's decision to exterminate the Jews did not happen until sometime during either the summer or early fall of 1941, following the invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa. So is it the case that you're sort of thinking about these assassins as engaging in genocide prevention as a scholar with the benefit of hindsight, 
or is there evidence from, say, their diaries or, you know, the historical materials you're looking at that they somehow saw the emergence of a genocidal policy that even the Nazis themselves had not decided on in the 1930s? Okay, so Hitler, so that's a comment about Hitler and my thinking about what's going on in the mind of Hitler. And then I'll come back to your question sure. about, you know, our knowledge about when when the decisions were made. Um, so Hitler believes that the only way to defeat the Allies and the Soviet Union in December of 41, uh, this is only after some, I think it's even after Stalingrad. It's, it's when he starts losing. And and so he has to, um, there are two things that are going on in his mind. First of all, I think he wants to leave a legacy of a better world, a world without Jews. He mm-hmm. believes Jews are an evil force, so he wants to leave behind a better world. That's what he says in his uh, uh, will, right? Right. But I also think that he has conspiracy thinking, and he believes that if he kills the Jews, then America will not be so in- be interested so much in, in being involved in this war, um, because obviously the Jews are driving America. And the same with the Soviet Union, uh, the Jews are driving the Soviet Union. So killing the Jews is killing the evil force behind those who want to strangle Germany. So um, so it, conspiracy thinking kind of leads him to kill Jews also for the national interest, not just for a better world. Now, okay, now, how did, it, how did uh, these terrorists know that, that genocide is coming? Um, we have we have instances of killings, but the truth is that I'm going to uh, uh, they, first of all they have a sense of history. Um, I want to just quote for a second Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill says, "As soon as the Nazis come to power in January of 1933, I'm afraid not just for the lives of Jews in Germany, but for the lives in the whole of Europe." Mm-hmm. Now we know that uh, uh, um, Hitler said what he said in Mein Kampf. We also know that in only in January of 39, he talks about Vernichtung, right? Elimination yes. of all the Jews in Europe, mm-hmm. only in January 39. But even before that, you know, uh, if you look at uh, Julius Reicher and, and Der Sturmer, you see where the regime is going. Now, it's true. It's true that the killing or the genocidal policies began much later. But with the benefit of hindsight, looking at history, and remember, these people have a sense of history, you know, every time anti-Semitism is growing, we're going to have pogroms. Anti-Semitism is growing, we're going to have pogroms. You know, it's it's kind of something that repeats itself as a Jew again and again and again and again. You feel the sense of anti-Semitism growing and you know soon enough it's going to be a pogrom. Mm-hmm. We don't know how many are going to die, but we know people are going to die, right? Um, at best, we're going to be expelled. Um, uh, you know, uh, right. You know that, yeah, because you have a sense of history, and and, and David Frankfurter actually talks about that exactly. He talks about it in his article and commentary that he sensed things are going in that direction. So I don't think it's rationalizing. I really think it's a sense of we see the Jews are being treated like subhuman. That's what Herschel Greenspan is saying, and so we know next step could be genocide or mass atrocity. We're not talking about only fifty people being killed. We're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Um, it's a sense of history and also, um, a sense of, uh, 
you know, a fear that this might happen. And even if you don't know it's going to happen, you know it's a, a real risk that it's going to happen. And for them, that justifies using violence. So I agree with you. You can never forecast history, and they cannot forecast history. But they will say there is a real risk that this might happen, and therefore I must use violence to prevent it from happening, to, to reduce the forces that are pushing in that direction, right? Um, precisely because history is plastic and it may turn in a different direction, my action can make a difference. Interesting. Hence, yeah. hence another legitimation for terrorism, of course. So did they have... By the way, I, I, I have a problem with assassination being branded as terrorism. I always had a problem with that. I think that assassination is not um, the killing of innocent people. I think that that... You know, once you decide to be part of the Nazi machine or Putin machine today, you are you are no longer innocent. Even if you're a diplomat, you're no longer innocent. Um, you're not a civilian. You have a choice to be a civilian. That would make it pure terrorism. But killing, assassinating someone in a regime that engages in persecution um, or wanton killing of civilians, you are no longer innocent. You chose to be part of that regime. This sort of brings me to my next question then. So you weigh into some fraught, very interesting territory of how Europe's Jewish communities responded as a larger right. community uh, to the emerging and then manifest threats posed by the Nazis. So, you know, the, the period of persecution, as Friedlander calls it, and then later the period of extermination, as he calls it. Um, and then you say that your three cases, these three assassins, that they show a greater strategic sense than the rest of the Jewish community. So maybe you could say for our audience, what were the strategic calculations of Jewish communities around Europe? And of course, this is a very large number of people in the East, the South, in the, in the West. They're living in all sorts of different circumstances. And of course, there's all sorts of different political inclinations, Bundists, Zionists, all that kind of stuff. But could you say a little bit about what Jewish communities were thinking, especially in the later 30s, then into the 1940s as the, as the Holocaust began, and and the kind of strategic sense they had, and and how they, um, how this kind of strategic sense is faulty relative to the three uh, assassins that you're talking about. So they they followed the good old pattern of believing that we're vulnerable communities. Use of terrorism would lead to retribution, and we're too. Vulnerable. We're just too vulnerable. We cannot even defend ourselves. So lowering our head in, in cases where we cannot emigrate elsewhere, and they did emigrate. Right. They tried to emigrate to Palestine. They tried to emigrate to Latin America. Um, and that's why we had, you know, efforts by everyone to allow them immigration. Um, but in cases where you cannot emigrate, acts of violence will only lead to retribution by the regime um, that you cannot defend yourself from. So the best you can do is sometimes lower your head, accept that this is your destiny to suffer a bit and wait for a better ruler, right? And that has worked for generations. It literally worked for generations. So why stop now? What's new about the Nazis? Hmm. Um, that was the common sense. Uh, uh, in fact, the father of David Frankfurter tells him, why did you have to do it? Why did you have to kill 
uh, uh, the head of the Nazi party in Switzerland. And, and of course, Frankfurter changed history. He helped change history. He made sure that the Nazis would, uh, would not have their fifth column inside Switzerland, that they would not take over Switzerland the way they took over Austria and subversion. Um, uh, for me, he, he understood history. Um, so it's an interesting... They, they, they are taking... They cannot play games. The rabbis cannot play games. But also, I must say, there's something beyond strategic calculation. We have to bear in mind that the Jewish communities abhorred violence. These are communities governed informally, sometimes, by the women of the community, right? Men are not allowed to engage in agriculture or fighting or being a soldier. Women are very dominant. Women don't like violence. Um, and they, they don't. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm saying something blunt. They look two steps ahead. They're afraid of the consequences. So they don't like violence. They seem It seems too emotional, too rash. Let's hold it. Let's wait for a better days and so on. Um, very cautious communities. And, and Frankfurter said, no, history is changing and I must shape history in the right direction. One of the things you suggest is that these assassinations happened in part to attract attention to of the persecution of the Jews, you know, in the 1930s in the interwar period. Um, could you say a little bit about what the international reaction actually was to these assassinations? And, and did they, you know, succeed in effectively ringing the alarm bells? Our usual narrative of the interwar period is as things become worse and worse for Germany's Jews and then for for the, the larger community, is that the international response is ex woefully inadequate, to put it politely. Right. And, and uh, you raise a very important question. How is this terrorism actually effective in preventing genocide? So we talked about David Frankfurter engaging in counter-subversion, right? He kills the head of the Nazi party in order to prevent Nazi takeover by a subversion. Makes a lot of sense. But both Frankfurter and Herschel Greenspan we're thinking about, and also, by the way, uh, uh, um, uh, Shalom Schwarzbart, we're thinking about dramatizing the plight of the Jews and bringing it to world consciousness, right? That that was the issue. And and it did work. It did work very much in Kristallnacht. Um, uh, I, I went exactly into this issue of what were the diplomatic responses to both Kristallnacht and to the assassination um, of the head of the Nazi party, Wilhelm Goldsloth. Because looking at the diplomatic responses is amazing. Um, the German ambassador to, you know what, let me start with Britain. Um, Churchill didn't need much persuasion. He knew that this regime, uh, but it was added evidence for him, just more and more evidence for him that this regime is just uncivilized, right? He he says we're, I love one of his speeches that he explains to the British people why we're declaring war. It's to fight over civilization. This is about civilization. Why? Because these are people that don't belong to civilization. We cannot coexist with them. So for him, these these cases of pogroms that the assassinations triggered did cause more attention. Kristallnacht led a lot of, to a lot of diplomatic response to the point where a German ambassador, I forgot whether it's London or Washington, said um, the Munich Agreement is in risk. Mm -hmm. uh, there were condemnations from everyone. It's true that Chamberlain um, said that I don't care much for the Jews. He said it to his sister. But um, he also uh, said Neville Chamberlain 
that these are barbarities, that this, these are things which are not done. Um, Dorothy Thompson was uh, uh, an American journalist, and she was um, she was Emily. You know, you probably remember the Emily Hophouse from mm -hmm. from the Boer War, who made a difference in the Boer War. She's the the she's the uh, Emily Hophouse of the Second World War. She she starts to ring the alarm bells. Now it's a process. The U.S. We know that the U.S. is always consumed with itself first and foremost. So it's a process. First of all, uh, uh, she triggers the Jewish community into action, and then more and more allies. Um, I think she does a terrific work, and it wouldn't have been happening had there not been uh, uh, Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht is interesting because what is terrorism? Terrorism, a lot of times, is a spectacle, right? 9-11, a spectacle, big spectacle. Goebbels says, I'm going to out-spectacle the spectacle. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to do another spectacle. But that shows you barbarity. That shows you more terrorists than the other side. He, By the way, he had to do it. I can go into Goebbels' considerations. I can really go into what's going on there um, and why it led to Kristallnacht. Um, I think if you could do that in a kind of short uh, okay. few sentences, that would be very helpful. OK, so the Munich Agreement. So, sorry. First of all, Ribbentrop-Molotov was a problem. Ribbentrop-Molotov, as well as the Munich Agreement, were a big problem. They're, they showed up, we're talking here, I think August is um, Munich, they showed that Nazism is not true to its word, that Hitler is not really as ideological, ideological as he should be, right? And Goebbels understand that Hitler needs to prove himself to the party as being very ideological. Because in foreign policy, he became, you know, like a normal politician, not a true revolutionary uh, who would uh, build a German empire. Um, signing agreement like Munich and so on, um, the Munich agreement. So he understood his, his plight, his, his plight within party members. And he, he says to Hitler, don't worry, I'll arrange for you an event that will not shed bad light on you. But at the same time, we'll prove your loyalty to the party, your loyalty to the ideology, because that's what party members expect of you. Now, why does Goebbels do that? Goebbels has to prove himself again. He has been caught with his affair with a Czech mistress, mm -hmm. who was, of course, uh, one of his actresses in his movies. He's the head of propaganda. Mm -hmm. and, and he lost favor. He just lost favor with Hitler. And, you know, it's a competition of winning favor with a dictator. It's a very tough competition. And he has to win that competition again. So he orchestrates the whole event. Of course, Heidrich is very useful, but but it's Goebbels' idea. Mm -hmm. It's really Goebbels' idea. Um, and Ian Kershaw goes into that, by the way. It is wonderful. Passages. That's right. Yeah. Um, so that's something that, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, yeah, the diplomatic responses are just amazing. Uh, you can see so many heads of states understanding truly the nature of the Nazi regime, thanks to Kristallnacht. So Kristallnacht, in a way, and by the way, and a lot of Jews emigrated after Kristallnacht. That's right. Some yeah. of my family yeah. emigrated to Palestine after Kristallnacht. Uh, so it was useful in so many ways in limiting the scales, the scale of the Holocaust. Um, and yes, a lot of times a regime, especially a dictatorship, has to respond with vengeance to a terror attack. But that very vengeance is exactly what the terrorists wants to showcase to the world 
and maybe even to his own community who's stupid enough not to understand the true nature of the regime. So wonderful, Herschel Greenspan. You saved so many Jews, so many lives. It's amazing. Great, Or. It's been a really wonderful conversation so far. And I want to return to an idea that um, you keep on orbiting around a really important one, this idea of the historical sensibility of these Jewish assassins and the way that this historic sensibility, you say, provides them with a kind of openness to the way that the future can go terribly, terribly wrong. And so instead of looking forward, I want to ask you two questions about how these Jewish assassins that you study looked backward. And one question has to deal with the history of violence that surrounds these these cases. And for those who don't study terrorism or maybe who aren't as familiar with the late 19th century, early 20th century in, in Europe, might not realize how extensive violence against heads of state or near heads of state was at this time between, say, the 1860s and 1930s. By by one count, we can identify almost 60 significant events of assassination or attempted assassination that are directed at individuals at the highest level of the state. For instance, the the Tsar of Russia, the Kaiser of Germany, the King of Italy, the President of France, the Empress of Austria-Hungary, two U.S. presidents, the King of Belgium, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, the King of Spain, two Spanish prime ministers, the King of Greece. It's, it's almost astonishing. And that's just naming individuals at the, at the highest level in this, in this period. So how – can you tell us a little bit about – how the assassinations that you study fit within this long tradition in in Europe and a little bit in in North America and speaking about the the assassins in in particular what what evidence did they leave us of their own thinking about how they fit within this violent tradition These are great questions. Can you hear me well? Because I can see the line is really bad for some reason. Oh, yeah, yeah you're coming um, through really well now. Maybe I should restart the computer. Great. So David Rappaport would say something very simple and very correct. This is anarchist wave, right? Of course, of course, uh, uh, the anarchist wave led to assassination of uh, President, was it McKinley? I forgot which American president. Mm-hmm, correct. Yeah, that's yes. right. But Emma Goldman was blamed for it, right? Yes. Uh, and, and Emma Goldman was blamed. It, you know, it's all from Russia. It's all it's all uh, anarchism coming out of Russia. And and Emma Goldman is one of those. And Shalom Schwarzbard is influenced by anarchist ideas. They 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 um, no longer accept uh, the legitimacy of rulers if they do bad things, right? So um, this this violence is part of anarchist anarchist wave in the sense that we're not accepting rules and we care about, and we take actions into our own hands. We don't just demonstrate, we're anarchists, right? 
right? We don't demonstrate, we change history, right? This is beautiful about anarchism, that they do things to change the world. They don't wait or they don't, don't demonstrate. <laughs> they just do things, uh, anarchists. But the difference about these three cases is that they actually have a sense of peoplehood. Mm. They care about Jews, about Jews. They're not Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman cares about the world. You know, there are Jews who say the better way to, to the best way to safeguard the life of Jews is to, to have a better world, right? Um, by uh, 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 improving the world, and that's probably going to be Emma Goldman. Um, and there are Jews who say, no, we need to take care of our own people. And there are Jews who say, um, like Benjamin the Israeli or uh, Jews who were loyal to the Austrian Empire, let's be big part of a big empire, and then nobody notices that we are a minority in it. Um, uh, Jews loved empires. Uh, they're fantastic. Uh, you're just one of many, and, and you're swallowed in. Uh, you're, you're not seen as too different. Um, so these are anarchists. They they began as anarchists, but after a while they realized that they're being targeted much more than any other group. And that's why they have a greater sense of peoplehood than anarchism. At least Shalom Schwarzbart starts as an anarchist. I mean, he's from Ukraine. Um, yeah, but they're all in the margins of society. Uh, Frankfurter... Uh, is a bit less than the others, uh, uh, but Herschel Greenspan, he he's in the margins of society. He has he's kind of drip pushed into violence almost. Um, does that answer your question um, no. about the anarchist wave? Right. So so this idea of the propaganda of the of the deed is this at the forefront of their mind, and and do they consciously understand themselves within this anarchist tradition, and and I guess. Uh, for our for our listeners, what is the who who might be interested in in following up on these cases? What is the evidence that we have of their own thinking in terms of the political commitments that they that they have? So, do we have their their diaries? Do they make public speeches? Do they belong to various organizations? And so, we know how they. Uh, voted? Do we have uh, police records? Were they uh, arrested and records of their, in, say, any interrogations and, and so on? So you, you had mentioned previously the way in which the, the Jewish state, in a sense, appropriates these figures as part of its own project. But in terms of how these individuals thought themselves, what what record do we have of of their own thinking, so that we don't just appropriate them, we we take them on their own terms? That's a great question. First of all, they follow the pattern of anarchists um, in a sense that they, you know, uh, kill and then they rush to the police in order to be arrested and say, "I did it," and then they wait. For for the trial, and then they make the trial into the best place to showcase their argument, right? Um, they're not the FLN trying to kill and then run away, kill and run away. They're not Irgun, the, the, those organizations that are trying to use attrition um, to kill and run away. No, they're actually very proud of what they did because they think they did the right thing. Um, sounding anarchist, I know it's very anarchist in their thinking, right? I did the right thing and therefore I'm proud of it and therefore I want to be uh, uh, prosecuted. And by the way, the French court uh, found um, 
found Sholem Schwarzbart not guilty. Uh, the the Swiss court decided he's guilty only to please the Nazis. But of mm. course, as soon as the Second World War was over, uh, they let Frankfurt go to Israel. And France had a problem because France was torn between pro-German forces and pro-British for, pro-British forces. And so it was very political. Um, but in all three cases, you can see this kind of anarchist thinking, I did the right thing, I should be proud of it, and I want the message to get across to the world, right? And in fact, Herschel Greenspan almost became a celebrity. He he had so many interviews. At the same time, um, we have their diaries, uh, not the diaries, we have, uh, for some of them, uh, for Frankfurter and for uh, Schwarzbard, we have their memoirs. Um, Frankfurter had even interviews, you know, he lived in Israel until 1975. He was allowed to emigrate. Um, uh, Schwarzbard died in, in South Africa. I never got to Israel. And Greenspan was killed by the Nazis, mm. uh, probably. So so we have, uh, we have two sources of evidence about him. First, the trials. The problem about the trials is they, they say whatever serves best their cause, mm. right? Um, but but they, presumably they went to the police because they want to say in the trial whatever they want to say. Right. In each case, they went to the police and handed their gun and said, I did it. Please now arrest me and take me to court because they're waiting there to their trial. The second one is, is again, interviews. Um, Frankfurter wrote articles. He wrote book, you know, a book, an article. Schwarzbart had a diary. We know what drove them. Um, in hindsight, maybe they will over-rationalize things and reduce the weight of emotion, of course, and show it's much more calculated and, and show the benefit of hindsight of truly understanding the scale of the Holocaust coming, right? Uh, you read Frankfurter in commentary, and he's saying, I knew this was Amalek coming. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you couldn't, he couldn't have known. But but I think he had a uh, he he had a sense that there's persecution going on. The world has to know about it in order to stop it. Um, and in that sense, he's he's a son of a rabbi, a very important rabbi in Croatia. He has a sense of responsibility to the Jewish people. By the way, for generations, Jews there were always young people hot-headed who wanted to do terrorism, and always the rabbis told them, "Don't do it. You have to be responsible. What will happen to the rest of the community?" The, the here terrorism took place because all these free individuals were away from their community mm. and so they could afford not to listen to the to those voices which are restraining them the rabbis who are restraining them the the women who are restraining them from revenge right um there were two of them in paris one in davos but uh near davos but uh away from their community um and so they they could be more rash that's Less restrained by communal considerations. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really fascinating, uh, a really fascinating account. And and I guess I have one one last question that that builds that builds on that. Is it that these three Jewish assassins, their distance from the community, does it give them the opportunity to refashion their relationship? to Judaism, to the Jewish community, or is it uh, for them an experience of liberation? So I'm not refashioning my relationship to that community. I'm now liberated from it, and now I can do what I think is necessary to do. 
I think that they, first of all, they feel part of the community. Okay. But they, they are much more prone to act. They, you know, they have a sense of, uh, I don't, uh, there's a reason why the state of Israel made them heroes. Yes. Because they have a disdain to the passivity of Jews working through the system, always through the system, never try to raise your head, never try to be too conspicuous, never use violence, right? Always wait for a better ruler. The specificity of Judaism, passivity, they have a disdain for it, a total disdain for it. Um, and, and I think the distance allows them to say, we're Jewish, we feel responsibility for the people, but we're not going to follow the Jewish manual, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's why they take law into their own hands. And that's why they're so few and far between. Look, I was looking for Jewish assassinations. I found five instances of attempt to do so, three real cases. I mean, so many, so many cases of atrocities and yet so few actions of violence. It's, you know, for a scholar of terrorism, this is frustrating. Um, <laughs> this is really interesting. No, it is. It is very, very interesting. Thank you very much, uh, Orr. Thank you so much, Orr, for joining us. It's been a great conversation, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Yep, thanks, Orr. Orr Honig will be here at the University of Calgary on June 9th, 10th, 2023, for our Oddities of Violence workshop, made possible through funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about Orr's work, uh, drop by or live stream the workshop. Details will be on the Oddities of Violence website. You have been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas. Thanks, Alejandra. With support from the great team at CJSW. Join us for our next episode when we continue with our discussion of the Oddities of Violence. We will be looking at the theory of violence and claims to newness or novelty within the literature on particular types of violence, such as terrorism or genocide. Our guest then will be Marta Bischofsky from the University of Regina, and your host will be Josh Goldstein. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.